broadcasting live from the Winthrop House. You're now listening to the Safe Negro Podcast Show. House to another stupendous episode of the Safe Negro Podcast Show for all nerds' very own HBO Lovecraft Country Rundown Podcast. Uh, we are talking today about episode seven, I Am. Before we get into things, let me introduce myself. I am one of your hosts, Tatiana King, aka Hippolyta Up. Also, I'm here with DJ Ben, I mean, aka Dubcraft Country, aka George Freeman's Ghostwriter. Ooh, nice, nice, nice. And not to be outdone, we have the legendary Portia Patterson Hurst, aka um interdimensional uh, interdimensional garnet. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, see, Portia always comes with the heat because her stuff has levels to it. Mm-hmm. And this episode similarly has levels upon levels upon levels. It was actually my absolute favorite episode of the season thus far. Mm. I became incredibly obsessed. For many reasons that we're going to get into. Um, But just to give you some of the layout, it is directed, this episode, directed by Charlotte Sealing, written by Misha Green and Shannon Houston, or Houston, depending on where you you go. Houston, Um, baby. It's Houston. Houston. The word is Houston. If you're from New York, it's Houston Street, so. Uh, (laughs) It's a a city. Houston. Um, H-Town? H-Town going down. Uh, There is a trigger warning uh, for blood. As usual, uh, mm-hmm. some photosensitivity. There's lots of flashing lights, flashing lights going on. <laughs> and there is a sexual orientation slur that got peppered in as well. So just a little bit of warning there. Uh, giving you the basic plot. Let's talk about time traveling, something minor raveling, because Mommy Darius, Miss Hippolyta is taking a trip in more ways than one. Uh, Lida ain't having it when it comes to the explanation for uncle george's untimely demise and so she uses her beautiful mind to unlock the secrets of the heart of the universe freedom ain't free y'all it's the return of the gangsta as letty and ruby prove sisters are gonna work it out and atticus chasing after his auntie leads him to find a discovery that changes everything Mm -hmm. Uh, as i said this episode has so many layers just Mm. I don't even want to, people usually use the term like an onion or something like that. I want something more beautiful, like a lotus or something. Mm. Just, just, just beautiful petals that, that unfold to show you an even deeper level of, of, of themes, um, lots of levels and understanding of self and of consciousness. Um, and, and that takes us right into our, our themes of the show, excuse me, our themes of the show. Um, and the first really is, uh, a message that is engraved within the orrery that's revealed after Hippolyta activates it. The message says, or the quote says, every beginning is in time and every limit of extension in space. What does that mean? You're going to have to explain it to me because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was, you know, I was kind of sitting there. Um, one note that I just liked was when she figured out the orrery was she shifted the position of the planet so they weren't straight up. Because, you know, to have actual rotation, the planets don't rotate uh, in space straight up. You know, they rotate at an angle. And that mm-hmm. was just a cool little note right there. And then she did it and the whole thing lit up. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, as far as what that, you know, I mean, I know that we know there's a whole lot of meanings to it and a lot of uh, history behind the phrase and whatnot. But, yeah, me, it 
time, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know? Absolutely. You know, I was already on the trip by that point. So, you know, I was like, wow. You know, that was my reaction. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's tons of interpretations there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for me, I was yeah. more like I kind of I had a like a Harry Potter nerd moment where I'm like, this is <laughs> like um, when they when Dumbledore spelled the um, think it what is that? It's gonna bother me that I don't forgot the term that quickly. Um, Harry Potter's the seeker. He catches the oh the snitch, the snitch, the golden snitch. So that reminded it reminded me of the golden snitch whenever it opened because mm. it's like I open at the close and it's like all gold and has an inscription and it kind of like appears like that and it's oh, like yeah. giving me the same kind of vibes. Yeah. Um, so interesting who put Hippolyta on this journey. Like that was Dumbledore putting Harry on that journey, but like what's going on here? Who made that inscription and was he hoping? Did he ever in his wildest dreams think that that would be Hippolyta following that quest? A black woman. Yeah, highly doubtful. <laughs> I think if he was still alive or even ghost alive, he would have something to say about it. But, you know, being that he yeah. double dead. Nah. So the orrery belonged to Hiram, right? Mm-hmm. It was in Hiram's house. It was it definitely was Hiram's house. or Ori. Everybody's called a Hiram's Ori in the show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because, like, in the book, it's different. And I'm like, I'm not sure who, who, like, actually owns it, like, created it. Who created it is one thing. I'm not sure. But they've, like, they've referred to it as Hiram's Ori because it's up in his crib at the very least. So, he, you know, he was holding it down. Whether or not he made it, doubtful. Gotcha, you know, gotcha. Yeah. So as mentioned, that phrase, every beginning is in time and every limit of extension in space has a lot of different meanings and, and, and interpretations going on. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly one of the main ones is you can take it as the nature of an understanding of reality, mind and matter, mm-hmm. matter rather, the infinite potentials and actuals. In this episode, you realize that Hippolyta realizes that she's full of infinite possibilities, that mm-hmm. she's a vast being that has unfortunately been shrinking herself for others for years. Um, as she travels through the different dimensions, she takes on various forms. And by the end of the episode, Hippolyta realized that, you know, she kind of realizes more of her full self, which is more than a small version of her that she's been living. She, she's infinite. She's as large as the galaxy. And her dreams and wishes and abilities and her potential to be more than she is uh, comes to fruition. Uh, we see a lot of that theme carry over through a lot of the stuff we see in the episode. Uh, just the idea of the idea of space and the galaxy, the infinite potentiality there. Um, time traveling to other, time travel and travel to other dimensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of things like DC Comics, Infinite Earths, um, the Hourverse. In Marvel, you think of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and even uh, in, in my head, I was thinking also that that also relates to Ruby Christina as they move through life as Hillary and William, because that shows you kind of the, the difference between the potentials and actuals, life and death. Like you're walking through life as these people who are technically dead. Um, mm. And so, you know, and again, it just th- that idea of mind over matter or, or the differences between mind and matter. I think it, it's a great. Uh, exercise in, in philosophy and really metaphysics. Uh, th- this 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 episode goes deep into metaphysics. Mm-hmm. It's also like I really think the idea, and I like this, is that in this show a lot of people like this episode is about I am and Serafina, who we're going to get into, the woman that Ruby meets, asks Ruby, "Who are you?" and keeps asking her to define herself. But she, you know, I mean, not Ruby. Uh, Hippolyta. No, Hippolyta, yeah, yeah. But everyone in this show is coming into their own and defining themselves by their terms. And that's something like you were talking about. Like, that's something that refers back to the early episode 
when Christina says the magic isn't about, you know, becoming a white dude or you becoming a white woman. The magic is about doing whatever the fuck you want. And that's the same thing that, you know, Hippolyta is learning in this episode, that the magic isn't about, you know, these lives or all this stuff. It's about you in your own life doing whatever the fuck you want. Excuse my French. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And and Ben, could you talk a little bit more about Serafina? Yes, I can. Once again, (laughs) it's one of my favorite things. Um. Yeah, I was, all right, this episode is, like you said, also one of my favorites so far. You know, we're now seven episodes in, and this is one of my joints. I was loving it. And Serafina is one of the two beings that shows up when Hippolyta first goes through the, you know, bigger Ori and gets transported to what seems to be another world, another earth, another dimension, another planet. You know, we're quite unsure of all that. But what we do see is that she's on this planet. There's crystals all over the ground. And then these two celestial-looking beings uh, approach her. And in that uh, term, celestial, we're talking about like two different ways in celestial. Mm-hmm. Like celestial refers to the order of which angels and God is the highest part of in Christianity, right? And so seraphim are the highest order of angels in this mm-hmm. order. They're right below God. Mm-hmm. So Serafina is the feminine word of Seraphim. So that's one instance. And then we're also talking about Celestials from like Marvel comic books, which when Serafina is in her full armor and the other one who's next to her, they greatly resemble Celestials for those who know Marvel comic books. And Celestials are also like uh, what are called in Marvel, usually referred to as like space gods. So yes. they're like right below God themselves. And they also are like, as in like the Christian Bible refers to um angels coming to mate with man in the very early times and creating these great beings and giants and all this look it up it's all in genesis that's how celestials are often pictured in marvel comics where they came to earth in ancient times and messed with humanity thus creating the inhumans etc and probably seeding the origins of mutants and superpowers in general so we have this seraphim this seraphina this angel basically approach her and asked her who she is and asked her to define herself and tells her that it's not a prison you know it's like what tupac and every other rapper said you know they locked my body can't trap my mind you know and then (laughs) so that's what they're that's what she gets asked and her answer to that question leads her on this journey one last thing about that that i really loved was that the spaceship or whatever that they first go into seems to be like a giant beating heart in space yeah. And as Lyda Lita travels through, makes her travels through these various dimensions, planets, multiverse, whatever, you hear that beating heart again and again as she transports. And you see what looks like ventricles or aorta's, you know, the chambers of a heart that she's traveling through. So, you know, my theory there is that, as always, we see the Seraphine, who is a black woman. You know, we see Lita being approached to join the order of celestial beings, black women. We see the heart at the center of the universe, black women. So black women are the beating heart of the universe. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> That's beautiful, Ben. That's all I got to say, folks. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's actually was really well done. Mic drop moment right there. That really was. Uh, and, and also a major theme of the episode, the beating heart of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, black women. Yep. And and shout outs to Karen LeBlanc, who uh, was the actor that played Serafina in this episode, mm-hmm. which I who I thought as soon as I saw her looked like Garnet from Steven Universe. Yep. <laughs> like just <laughs> like her. Hard body. Right. Yeah. Um, 
but uh but absolutely and also and garnet is like that right i'm not i'm not that familiar with steven universe but Uh garnet is also like an angel right she She, i would say she she i don't maybe not angel but she is very much uh a guardian for for steven um she's very much a a guiding light for him there we go um a divine messenger a divine messenger absolutely there we go Speaking, there it is. Speaking it of is. divine messenger, <laughs> uh, Serafina is actually considered a divine messenger. So mm-hmm. particularly in tarot readings, if, if mm. anyone has ever had their cards read and things like that, um, what what we've learned is the angel Serafina is known to guide you through your life, um, uh, guide you through any challenges that will stimulate forthright discussion and that learning that the truth is very cleansing. Um, the angel Serafina is supposed to help you learn about your own feelings and your priorities on a deeper levels and allows you to share with others in a deeply honest way. And Mm -hmm. we see that happen with Hippolyta, particularly with her conversation with uncle George. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and I could call him uncle George. That's my uncle George y'all. And I told y'all he was coming back. There was no way they was going to kill man and you would never see him again. No way. Yep. Also, one last thing on the uh, Seraphinas and the Seraphim, the angels are usually seen as having red or blue. And we see the armor suit, you know, that she's wearing is that purple, that purple, you know, a combination of red and blue. You know, Mm -hmm. we always like to talk about the colors, the colors on this show. And there you go. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, We we talked a lot about as she as she's going through these different dimensions, she's traveling. She's and, and if we're talking about personal dimension we're talking about that beating heart is her own heart she's traveling within the different versions of herself she's traveling through her her own personhood right um there, there's something there like you said like we yeah. you said this earlier like the infinite is in within yeah. you know like they say the um the universe there's as many sands of you know grains of sand on a beach as there are molecules in the universe you know it's like we we all contain infinite you know yeah. So we're made of the same uh, material as stars. There you go. You know, we're all we're all made that. of star stuff. And so is she traveling within herself or all these universes within herself? Could be. Could be. Could you know? be. Um hit that. <laughs> Pass that, homie. Pass that. Uh I promise you not all of us here are high. We are <laughs> We this, this is, but this is also real talk. You know, this I mean that, that that's also to talk about you know energy and its various forms and matter and the fact that we are all made of you know I mean everything in this universe when you break it down to the smallest level is made out of the same substance, Absolutely. right? But it just combines into different protons, electrons to make everything we see and we all perceive this world around us. But that's just because we perceive it to be this way. Yeah, the yeah. world is you know the universe is within. So there we go. And how we perceive the world actually leads to the next theme of of how we learn how the world works. A lot of times we learn from our parents. Mm. And the next theme deals with, the, you know, how parents influence their children and that how abuse is passed down from parents to children. Um, we, we've talked before in previous episodes about Montrose's uh, issues. Um, how he was brought up, how he was abused by his father, physical, physical abuse for being gay. Um, and his father, you know, beating him for expressing what he thought was effeminate qualities, you know, drawing, um, you know, being excited to see, was it the baseball players being excited to see the baseball players and things like that? His father was like, no, you're not going to be gay. 
Uh, and then in turn, Montrose is is monstrous to Atticus, you know, very excessively violent. Uh, and where, you know, when that scene after Atticus and Letty walk in on Montrose, stop trying to stop Sammy, um, you know, after they, they have their words with each other outside, Atticus is, is incredibly angry. He's in pain. He's confused uh, because and he expresses that Montrose beat him so he wouldn't, quote, be soft. Yet his dad, from from a very homophobic perspective, is considered soft. So um, and he's also, you know, uh, uh, Atticus is also pissed because it's revealed that his mother knew about Macho's being gay and no one told him anything. So um, that that idea of of parents keeping secrets, the idea of parents doing things that they claim it's for your protection or because they love you, but it's really their own neuroses and psychoses uh, being kind of inflicted upon you. Yeah, I like that they went there for this. Like whenever they were talking about like, like whenever um, Letty came out and Mon- and Atticus was telling her what it was that made him like so upset. It wasn't necessarily that his father is gay. It wasn't necessarily that everything was a secret. It was the fact that his father was so abusive to him. And he always had hoped that the abuse was just the an expression of his father's love. Like he just didn't know how to like love well. Mm-hmm. And then come to find out the abuse was his father hating himself and putting it on to his kid. Mm-hmm. And so that was that's so real like you know like you hope that when your parents are giving you weapons or whatever that that's not coming from a place of them being personally angry and then taking out that anger on you but nine times out of ten that is what it is and that's like the like major issue with um like corporal punishment in the first place is that where does that corporal punishment come from because like half of the time like when it gets to the point where there's a beat beating it's something that it's built up um, and then it comes out that way. And why is the anger being expressed that way? And how who is it actually helping or harming in the situation? Mm-hmm. Um, we see just in terms of influence, uh, parental influence, when Letty and Ruby have their their come to Jesus moment together. Uh, and even before, they they both speak a lot about the psychological abuse their mother inflicted on them, particularly Things like leaving them home alone to fend for themselves while she was out with men. Um, the fact that she was hustling people, hustling her own children. And Letty picked up some of those behaviors, particularly how Letty uh, is use, would use people and specifically Ruby. Using Ruby for money, using Ruby for a place to stay. Um, and, and that's always sullied their relationship to this point where you know they, they, they seem to be coming to terms now. I love how it's not said, but it's just so easily shown, you know, and that's just good filmmaking is that there's the differences that Ruby is the darker skin woman and Letty is the lighter skin sister. And so because of that, you know, Ruby is trying to feel a way about everything that Letty gets and Letty is not going to understand what Ruby is going through and why she feels that way. So I just love that that said. And also shout out to Ruby this episode. And when she showed up in them short shorts. Yeah. <laughs> Fan. She was cute. Woo! She was super she cute. She was looking good. Shout outs again to the costume designer. Because yes. The, the outfits are fire. Them again. red shorts, that shirt, the sunglasses. Oh, she came out like stunt. Let me stunt on you. Stunt on them hoes. Yes. Yes. Um, and then also just, just one of the final points about, about parental influence. You know, it's not always from a negative perspective, right? So when you think about Diana, the daughter of Hippolyta and Uncle George, um, 
Hippolyta has always been into science, space, STEM type of subjects. George draws and reads and all this stuff. And you see how it all culminates in Diana, who she's into creating works of fiction. She creates these comic books. She, she created the entire world of Arinthia Blue, who's a black female space adventurer. She used her, which uses her smarts and her wits to get out of trouble and explore. And to see that, you know, not only are, do you pass on potentially negative qualities, but also very positive and creative qualities to your children. And then the way that they then then manifest in children could be absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, so actually, Portia touched on this, another theme about self-hatred. Um, you know, the fact that Montrose is was always so so you know throwing hands on <laughs> for lack of a better word throwing hands on Atticus because of his own self-hatred of himself um Montrose is also abusive towards Sammy um just like when you know he was insulting Sammy's cooking for no reason uh Sammy knew that Montrose does this because Montrose has a pattern of doing this when he, when Montrose feels he's getting too close they're becoming too familiar um you know and he acts like, and Montrose acts like he doesn't care about Sammy, which is a very poor defense mechanism. Um, and I, I'll say this because I don't think I said it before. Montrose does not deserve Sammy whatsoever. Uh, mm. and it pisses me off the the way the, the the abuse that Sammy goes through. So wow. I just wanted to put that out there. Um, I mean, Sammy out here getting sloppy toppy in the back <laughs> of bars. So let's not act like Sammy is you know That's some just saint. I didn't say that. I'm yeah. talking about in relation to their relationship and the fact that clearly Sammy wants to be with Montrose and Montrose is abusive. Wait, but Sammy was getting sloppy toppy in the back of bars not three weeks ago. Sammy because is a Montrose, typical because, dude. And you know why? Because he can, because they're not in a relationship. You see how Montrose won't commit. True. True indeed. True. So no, in the Sammy's back not of bars, saint, not Sammy. damn fam. Like, you know, you can't get a room. No, you can't. It's not yeah, That's his place of business. Yeah, he's true. comfortable where he's comfortable. That's, he's facts, that's facts, his place of business. Right? I feel my, you. I own this. Yeah, I get point, sloppy toppy here. My whole point is not that Sammy <laughs> is a saint, but it's that in the context of this relationship and mm -hmm. one where it's clearly love there and Sammy wants more, Montrose just decides to be a dick. himself. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and particularly, you know, as we mentioned, self-hatred, Montrose lashing out at himself, not allowing himself to live in his truth. And what's interesting is he he reflects the behavior that you see in modern times, all times, but especially in modern times, where you see some of the most violently homophobic people are gay themselves, mm -hmm. and because they they're they're doing this, they're having this internal battle, um, and also a social battle. So mm. it's it's a lot to to work through. Um, when Hippolyta is speaking with Josephine Baker later on in the episode, right there, she, we got to talk. You know. I mean, Go ahead. But, that's you know, a can, huge conversation and a huge moment and everything. That's like her first big trip, you know. Like that's the mm -hmm. when um, uh, Serafina is like, "Yo, where you go? You know, who are you? What you want to be? You know, get out this prison." She's like, "I want to be with Josephine Baker," and that's like, you know, that's I guess her dream. You know, and that's that first dream that she was ever denied. Probably, you know, like mm -hmm. I want to be with Josephine Baker. That was like the, you know, out of everything in the world, what could you be right now? You know, dancing in Paris with Josephine. Yeah. And I ain't mad at the choice. I, I thought that was an incredible choice. <laughs> I was even more wild out when, like, she actually put it there. I said, oh, shit, okay, we're here. Yep. Um, but but particularly as it relates to to that theme of self-hatred, um, one of the many things that Hippolyte talks about in that conversation with Josephine, um, towards the end of her trip with Josephine, she talks about how she hates herself. Um, mm -hmm. And she hasn't realized that she lived to her full potential. And there's even a, a quote here where Hippolyta says that she wants... She, 
when she's talking about white people. She says, I want to kill white folks, but not just them. She mentioned she, I hate me. I hate me for letting them make me feel small. Yeah, I feel like, well, I mean, this comes up again later whenever she um, goes with the like Amazonian women, but like she makes a point about talking about like how like she wasn't allowed to not be ladylike, to not be like what they want her to be, the safe black female Negro, like Mm -hmm. taking care of her family, being a wife, being a mother, doing all those things. Um, And so it kind of like, I thought it came back to like a theme of like how earlier um, we hear about Atticus and Montrose, like not being allowed to be soft. And Mm then uh, this is like the opposite end of like, she's being forced to be soft. It's like when you're a black woman, like a black man, you can't look soft. Mm-hmm. Black women, you're forced to be soft mm. in order to get through life, in order to be the kind of black person who's not going to be jailed. But then also like you're in your own personal jail, like mm-hmm. because this is where you are. This is like society. You're in this place. You can't um, like Josephine Baker kind of went out the box or whatever by like choosing to dance naked on stage in front of any kind of folks or whatever for whoever paid tickets to go see her show. Right. And that wasn't something that was normal. Then that was outside of the box of what was ascribed to be a black woman. And then you see Hippolyta, she's in this journey. She's gaining that ability to kind of like, this is what I hate about myself. I hate about myself that I wasn't able to explore these other parts of my personality because I had to be the soft. I had to look that way Um, in order to survive. That's what I had to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a, and that's actually that's a great point, Portia, because it's it's a constant battle, right? Particularly in a when you when you grow up in a white supremacist society as a young black kid, whether you know, depending on the gender you identify as, the society will one tends to age us up. So you know they'll say little black girls are fast and they're this and they're that. Um, you know, you think of things like the sci-fi tropes and stuff like that. Um, and then to your point in this, like with, with Ruby was, excuse me, not Ruby, with Hippolyta saying just the fact that white folks said, oh, she has to be this type of woman to be acceptable. Um, and I, there's a quote that Hippolyta says that was absolutely profound. She said, white folks found a way, white folks found a smart way to lynch me without me noticing the noose. <laughs> and I had to pause it at that point because I was just like. Bro, like it reminds me of all of the covert ways that that white supremacy has has kind of, I would say, taken away from the growth of a lot of different uh, the growth of, of of just of just timelines, right? But also just how people get to move in the world. And right now, we're living in a, a time where you know this lots of that is being rejected um, physically. Lots of that's being physically rejected. Lots of that is being emotionally rejected, socially rejected. You see the the fight against that um, be- because it, it rears its head in a lot of strange ways. Like when you think of things like respectability politics or the good blacks, mm. um, the ways that th- this twists people and twists their personalities and their approach to life because that's what's acceptable. So it, it, it's, it was just a profound thought that she had. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's you and Portia just both touched on it as such a ill statement is how toxic whiteness and toxic patriarchy affects us all because like Portia said, you know, black men are sucked into this idea that we have to be super uber masculine. And then black women, if you say anything, you're considered, 
you know, fiery and rebellious and not easy to work with, mm-hmm. you know, and bossy and all this bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, that if a man says it, you know, they get rewarded for it. And I, like you said, when when she was like, I want to be with Josephine Baker, and then Josephine Baker shows up, I'm losing my mind because <laughs> it's just like, I love the show so much how much black history we're getting, you yes. know, and how much history on so many levels we're getting. And like you said, it's how the toxicness of our world, it messes with everyone, you know, it's not just, you know, men, women, black men, women, it's everyone, because everyone gets fucked over by it, but to see Josephine Baker is so beautiful because, you know, for those who don't know, now they can find out about her. But, you know, Josephine Baker was born in America in St. Louis, as she says. You know, mm-hmm. she's the grandchild of slaves. She went to Paris to pop off. She was the first black woman ever in a major motion picture in America. She mm-hmm. worked with the French resistance during World War II, you know, like straight gangster. Only woman to speak at the March on Washington alongside Dr. King. Just a badass. You know what I mean? Just Absolutely. the baddest of the bad. And, you know, a super talented entertainer, but as well as she's all these other levels to it, you know, and it's just so dope to see her and to see all this history in this show at once. But yeah, that that whole sequence. And like you said, what she said to her, what, you know, uh, Hippolyta said back, those legendary I mean, screenwriting yeah. in this episode off the chain off the chain and and josephine she refused to perform for segregated audiences mm-hmm. so the idea of just rejecting all of that those forms of self-hatred and 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 you know over and covert is and rejecting is, america shit man just but think about that like too like she had to reject her whole family like like mm-hmm. the whole like everyone had just it wasn't like her family came with her no. she went to paris by herself she had to reject everything that she ever grew up with yep. in order to have a semblance of a life so mm. what does what kind of uh toll does freedom take right and then while mm-hmm. she's over there in this other society she has to act because you know the french aren't very Perfect. accommodating for uh anyone especially if you're like american or whatever they're not going to accommodate you so she has to adjust to the french society to what they decide is okay for her to do and how she was able to do it and whatever mm-hmm. like how is she going to make connections or whatever and depending on how people are you know she's going to get what she's going to get but like there's a cost to that freedom that she's pulled out and i think that was a very good kind of like parallel to make here like having um Hippolyta interact with um josephine baker while seeking her own freedom and like this whole time that she is on this journey, you don't really see her think too much about her responsibilities and obligations back home. She's just looking mm-hmm. for freedom. So mm-hmm. it's really an interesting kind of like key there. Like what all do you have to like forego in order to be free? Like how free do you want to be? Indeed. Mm-hmm. Freedom is a huge theme in this episode, mm-hmm. particularly personal freedom, uh, self-expression, and even experimentation. Um, freedom uh, sexual freedom the conflict of freedom and obligation uh you you touched on that a bit portia the fact that you see hippolyta is not even thinking about her obligations at home she's just wanting to live her life Mm -hmm. um particularly in the in the personal freedom area um you see when hippolyta is first driving to um kansas you see her very delightfully surprised to see a black woman on a motorcycle that rides past her black woman riding solo uninhibited by anybody else it's a form of freedom and when i saw this again ben you mentioned the black history that's super rich in this series mm-hmm. that woman is probably bessie stringfield oh um, damn sure is, is this is a real life person first yeah. of all so she was the first african-american woman to ride across the united states solo 
on a motorcycle as she was one of the few civilian motorcycle dispatch riders for the U.S. Army during World War II. And she rode her own blue Harley Davidson. And, and as you saw in that scene, the woman, she had, she had first of all, she had like a little outfit on. She was looking cute, hair yep. laid. And then she had the blue Harley. And I was like, holy shit. Um, yeah, like uh, uh, earlier in the series, you know, we saw um, uh, 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 the young boy. <laughs> that we didn't even realize who Emmett he was. Emmett Till, Bobo. Bobo, right? Because that's what the name I was looking for. They used yep. the nickname. Emmett Till was in this. So, and I'm sure there's other, and there's, and obviously you see other touches upon what's happened in real life, mm-hmm. you know, during the civil rights movements and all the, the luminaries and the first that's happened during that time. But it was really important and awesome to see Bessie. Word up. Damn sure was. Yeah. Um, in, including when we talk about freedom, um, you know, when I thought it was funny when Atticus tried to get Woody the car <laughs> from. Uh, and first of all, it's just like, look, could you imagine like you about to pull out your driveway and then here come Waterhead Atticus Freeman talking about, yo, I need a car real yo, quick. To drive your nephew. To <laughs> yo, like not today. I, you clearly see I'm busy. But I mentioned that because Atticus tries to say to her to try to get the car. He tries to say to her, well, Uncle George wouldn't want you out there doing God work. And she's like, wait, 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 wait. Hiblot is like, wait, wait, wait. Who put you in charge, right? I can do what I want. You know what I'm saying? And when you think about, like, why wouldn't Hippolyte be able to do what she wants? She was George's wife. She was also part of this business. Why couldn't she go out there? But then you also think about how George was really dictating all of that. If remember when George was still alive, it was always, well, when George says we can go out, then we can do this. Mm-hmm. With him not being there to take those reins, she has to assume that, that and, and essentially have the freedom to do what she wants to do. Um, Hipp- I thought Hippolyta when she was dancing with Josephine Baker and the dancers, she was smoking that Kush, sniffing that yayo. Was she sniffing yayo? Oh, she sniffs that yayo. She wow. definitely sniffs that yayo off another woman's finger. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. Oh happened. yeah, she was living good. Wow, you know? I must have caught, caught contact. Damn, because I didn't yeah. even see that part. Oh, uh, she was definitely sniffing that yayo. Um. <laughs> Um, Hippolyta, uh, uh, the music again, music in this series is is pretty phenomenal. I think it's getting better as we continue down all the different episodes. But Hippolyta is, um, when she's in the car, she's listening to Josephine Baker's um, rendition of the song Piel Canela, mm. which is a, a romance love song about someone worshiping their lover's skin and eyes. Um, and it's in Spanish, but one of the stanzas reads, May the infinite be left without stars. Or may the wide sea lose its immenseness, but may the blackness or the glimmer of your eyes never die, and may the cinnamon of your skin stay the same, or the tan of your skin. Um, so you know, it, it, if you equate that with you know just just loving the skin you're in, particularly if you're black, um, what we talked about about the vastness of the universe and the galaxy, all of that all corresponds. So I thought that was cool. Um, I mentioned before the conflict of freedom and obligation. Um, well, hold on. That's not, you know, you got to talk about the sexual freedom because that was more going down when yeah, know, that, that's coming up and next. That. That's yeah. coming up next. Uh, the conflict of freedom obligation with the fact that by the end, even though Hippolyta gets to choose if she wants to stay with the Celestials, we'll call them that. Uh, she says, "No, I gotta go. You know, I gotta go back. I got duty. I got obligations at home." Mm-hmm. Um, you even hear it in the song "Fire" by Mother's Finest that plays when. Um, Hippolyta is is geared up and she's about to she's first about to fight the armies 
um, in those lyrics of that song, it talks about not being able to hide and that someone is watching everything you do. But it still talks about running, um, being wild. Fire represents being uncontrolled and free. Um, and then to your point, Ben, we we're talking about sexual freedom a lot. Uh, Hippolyta's time with Josephine Baker, wild sexual freedom being expressed during that whole sequence. Um, dancers even being free with their bodies. They're, they're often in the nude. Um, you see, lots, you see uh, I don't know if their relationships were just things that are just happening, but you see lesbian relationships happening, that free love kind of approach. Um, the Lady Marmalade song is playing at one point. That's a song about a prostitute. Um, and and really and Macho and Sammy, uh, you know, having being able to to love who you want to love and having that sexual freedom, um, you know, and, and that that's that's very difficult during that time, particularly. But all of that stuff, the fact that you're in one space where it's happening freely with no with nobody scoffing at you and another space where you have to hide that. <laughs> and then you had uh, I want to say her name is Nauri. The warrior woman who will get more into the whole tribe and everything, but she is training Hippolyta when she first shows up and is whooping her ass and <laughs> whooping I'm her ass, whooping her ass left <laughs> and right, beating her down and giving this beautiful, incredible speech about freedom and the difference between true freedom and the freedom that men offer them. And, you know, she tells him, I don't know what true freedom is. You have to find that out for yourself. But it ain't what you've been told. It ain't about the freedom to cook and clean and all that shit. And you're here now because you rejected all that. Now get the fuck up. Mm -hmm. It was all, oh, man. Uh, the woman is not listed on IMDb. I've seen the actor before, but I can't place her. But absolutely destroys it. Just, yeah. Oh, God damn. I rewound that shit so many times. That whole speech is so beautiful. It was mm. it was better than Shia LaBeouf, right? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> just real. do it. Yeah, no, 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 no. I don't know what true freedom is. You got to find yeah. it for yourself. Absolutely. I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm hype. I'm ready. Yeah. Where are we going? <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, so just moving on to another major theme, we have Afrofuturism. I love Afrofuturism. I, I love everything about it. You, I, I love the artists that that promote those that, that ideals. But just to give you a definition, uh, Afrofuturism is a cultural aesthetic. It's a philosophy of science and a philosophy of history. It explores the intersection of the African diaspora and its culture with technology. Um, it was actually coined in 93 by a white dude named Mark Derry. Um, and uh, it was continued to be explored through the 90s by Alondra Nelson. And, and particularly, you see Afrofuturism a lot in speculative fiction, um, where it, it treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. Um, you see this, the, the, most, the most tangible example is Black Panther. Um, the comics, and, and particularly in the films that have come out now, that carries a lot of themes of Afrofuturism in it. Um, but but also within Afrofuturism, it, it talks about the the signification uh, of images of African Americans married with images of technology and a, uh, you know a technolo technological enhanced future. Um, within that, you see that right away with Serafina, the as, as or, or the, the, her her 
parentheses name, the black woman Afro alien in the spaceship. <laughs> Garnet. <laughs> the Garnets of the episode. Uh, she, her outfit, Ben, you said like it was like armor or something? or I Yeah, I'm not sure, but it looks like a celestial, like we said before, like from all yeah. the comics. It kind of also looks like Black Panther suit because mm-hmm. it looks like yep. it kind of has vibranium type thing the running purple. through it. Yep. That purple running through it. Um, uh, the scene where George and Hippolyta are in that Arinthia Blue dimension. Arinthia um, Blue, you know, Diana's comic, That's that also deals with the different forms of Afrofuturism. Um, we mentioned, you know, being in space, using technology, being from the future and all that other stuff. Um, and during that Arinthia Blue dimension, a voiceover plays from an artist called Sun Ra. The great uh, Sun Ra. Yes. Sun Ra, uh, he was uh, from born in Birmingham, Alabama. He's an American jazz composer um, and poet known for his experimental music and cosmic philosophy. Um, And I just wanted to read a bit of that that voiceover. He he said Um, it's actually from Sun Ra's 1972 film Space is the Place. And he's talking to a group of black teenage girls. And he says, quote, I'm not real. I'm just like you. You don't exist in this society. If you did, your people wouldn't be seeking equal rights. You're not real. If you were, you'd have some status among the nations of the world. So we are both myths. I do not come to you as a reality. I come to you as the myth because that is what black people are, myths. Now, I definitely suggest y'all go and read the rest of that quote and read some more about uh, what Sun Ra has been doing since since he came to be but uh again insightful thought you know the the idea of black people and myths and and when you link that to afrofuturism uh, and you get all the different stories that come about um all the different uh writers um janelle monet considers herself uh an afrofuturist yeah uh real quick on that like sun ra yeah. along with like people like parliament funkadelic are also yeah. some of the progenitors of afrofuturism Mm-hmm. Like all the ideas that even people like Janelle Monet are doing now, where they tell stories throughout their whole albums, are come from you know Parliament spoke of the mothership, you know, and the mothership yes. coming down, and Sun Ra just himself go listen to his music, read up on him, watch his movies, all that dude is just a monster beast, just beautiful music around, and just a forward thinking person if there ever was one. So yeah, definitely and, worth checking out and read Octavia Butler's work. Mm-hmm. Of I mean, she's she's basically considered the mother of Afrofuturism. Yeah. Um, reading things like Kindred and and other works, like please teach yourself and learn about these things because it's it's, a, it's an incredible uh, genre and and it really provides what we have said before about a level of freedom that we have not been able to see before, particularly in those times. Mm-hmm. There's also um, a black lit mag called Fire. Um, and mm-hmm. they do a lot of stuff that's like spec fic. They carry a lot of authors who write spec fic, and it's like black spec fic, speculative fic, um, tends to do atrophurist tones um, sometimes as well. So if you want to check out some like newer writers who are just writing like short stories and you just want to kind of like get in, get out, and understand stuff quick, uh, Faya is great for that. Um, I'm just thinking How do you about Faya, F I Y A H, Faya. Oh, nice, nice. Faya. Yeah, as it should be. Yeah. As it should be. Yeah, I was making sure they got it right. You like, <laughs> your man George R.R. called it Fia, so. Wow, the disrespect. The disrespect. Um, but like as that quote, <laughs> that Jesus. quote for me, um, 
I was thinking a lot about like how that how Sunrise there is kind of talking about both the reality of like black folks once being like three fifths of people, mm-hmm. and also the like um, the magic Negro kind of tropes that we have about ourselves, like because we are missed because mm-hmm. when people, white people write about us, we have to be being this either um, this kind of supernatural kind of character. We have to be um, the strong black woman. Or the um, the folklore we have for uh, John Henry, who's like the super strong black man who can pile drive through mountains and do a railroad. Um, <laughs> so so pile driver, sorry. So I just feel like um, I feel like it's interesting because like Afrofuturism is like black people owning like the stories mm-hmm. and telling them the way that we like remodeling what our actual lived pasts have been. And um, in this story, where we're getting, like, that's what Dee's been doing this whole time is she's been, like, surrounded by, like, her parents who are, like, knowledgeable about the past. And she's taking these stories and she's redoing them in different ways. And then, you know, we have this ongoing story about Bobo, which we haven't seen come to a culmination yet, but Hmm. they keep bringing him up. Um, (laughs) And they brought him up this time as well in this episode. So I'm just like, I feel like you got to get a finishing on this Bobo. Yeah, you are. It yeah. ain't gonna be that ended you want because, like we said, this ain't time travel. The ghost you know? told me he was not gonna have a good time. Yeah, <laughs> you keep expecting, you know, like they say, if you're expecting a happy ending, you're watching the wrong show. Yikes. Um, <laughs> this episode, Bobo, Bobo, Bobo. yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it hurt me this episode, Portia, when, when they were like, When Bobo gonna come back? I was like, God damn, and I was, just thought they were gonna keep no more. driving this on, yeah, <laughs> that's what it hurt. I was like, No, I don't want it. Please let it go. But then also yeah. it's like it's very um on in tune for like what mm-hmm. children are like or whatever yep. they're playing a game. And like the mm-hmm. one there was like two salty kids and one yeah. of them was like, It's cause I'm hungry. If yeah. I had food, I'd be okay. But yep. I love that um that was just like the other kid was like, Where's Bobo? He knows how to play. So mm-hmm. it's like all the like the gripes you have whenever you're trying to play spades or whatever, and you're like, I need a better teammate. You ain't no good. Where's Bobo? He knows how to play spades. Right. No, Bobo probably trash. <laughs> right like when you gotta when hype you're, him up you know right. he ain't there yeah when your homies here y'all never y'all still wouldn't be able to beat this yeah game, still wouldn't be the win still please. wouldn't all right yeah what a detour so well, womanhood is a huge theme in this episode okay mm-hmm. uh womanhood blackness sit back right here and let y'all handle this yes thank you but i mean <laughs> uh womanhood and blackness in that intersection uh, huge. Um, we mentioned that speech that Hippolyta gave to. Well, we mentioned the speech that that Nauri gives, but also Hippolyta gives her own rousing speech to the warrior women, and in it she mentions uh, the freedom to hate when we must, the freedom to kill, being allowed to be fully human as a black woman um, is 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 different than what a lot of the white folks think. It is. And and also, I, I like that because it's something that is constantly told to us on, on all sides, just about, oh, you know, you got to, you know, you got to be peaceful and you got to do this and that. It is OK to be angry. If, if you're a black woman, you're angry about that. It is OK. Like that Ooh. whole trope about the angry black woman on that stuff. Reject that shit ASAP. Mm. That reminds me of like Black Panther and um, when Ryan Coogler was like doing an interview about like when they went down to South Africa and they were talking to different people in South Africa. Um, and he, saw, he had told some group um, about like how 
watermelon was vilified as black people like how like he was i don't know the subject came about watermelon and how like it's a bad connotation with black folk and the people in south africa were like that is messed up like watermelon is like a crop that gives brings good value or whatever and Mm -hmm. how dare they keep you from getting that nourishment that you want making that sound bad making it seem bad and it's like it's kind of like being an angry black woman is like it feels like anytime i'm angry I like check myself and I don't allow myself to be fully angry because mm-hmm. I've been taught to be angry. It's like in private, I can be as angry as I want to be. Um, but like in public, no, I can't be, I cannot be an angry black Mm-mm. woman. Yeah. No, you can't be an angry black man, angry black woman. I have this theory that uh, the reason why black people yell in the theater is because it's one <laughs> of the few places that we are incognito, you know, mm. where we can get away with it. Like we can talk as loud as we want in the theater because no one can see us. But you know, you step outside, then it's like, oh, be quiet, don't get I mean, killed. I mean, it's funny, but it's also lightweight. Like, damn, Ben, you might be right. Uh, hey, man, most of my, you know, there's always in any good joke, there's always some truth. And uh, speaking of a good joke, you know, she gives that rousing ass speech, um, <laughs> and then hits them with the Magic Johnson. But uh, I ain't gonna be here. You know? <laughs> She's like. You know, let me give you all this speech. I'm going to take off my helmet. You know, we done slaughtered the first wave. And that's another thing I mentioned. Like, this, there's this ill. She's traveling through all these worlds. And she ends up on this world with these warrior women. And you can explain, you know, where the history of the warrior women comes from. And then I'll talk about, like, the whole, you know, like, the weirdness of it. The yeah. other side. Yeah. So, again, the, this culmination of, of blackness and womanhood and black culture what I've understood is this is a reference of the Dahomey Amazons. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, uh, the Dahomey Amazons, also known as Mino, meaning our mothers in fond language, they were an all-female military army of the Republic of, Min- of Benin, which at the time was called the Kingdom of Dahomey. And the Dahomey Amazons, they were not allowed to have children or partake, to, or, or partake in any form of family life. They were, like, formally married to the king, like, on paper. They didn't have sexual relations with the king, but they were, like, the king's... Um, and which is interesting because that's just like the Dora Milaje in mm-hmm. Black Panther. Um, and, you know, having that understanding, um, and, and I thought it was perfect flip because, you know, with Hippolyta, her name, I I swore they were going to take her to some Greek Roman type of, mm-hmm. uh, of scene. And instead they flipped it to show you kind of an African Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. That having that understanding and then mixed in with the fact that they're like, what were you about to say, Ben? Yeah, you see them as the the, the homie, right? I got that right. Which the, the homie, yeah, yeah, which is like the obvious, like you said, the inspiration for I, the. I, I, apologies, we mispronounced it. True, indeed, yes. American you know. pronunciation. Yeah, and uh, you know the inspiration for the Dora Milaje, which you even saw in the Dora's costumes, it's the same red, the same whole thing. But then you see. That they're wearing Roman centurion helmets. Yeah. You know, and you see them slaughtering a small squad of Confederate soldiers before the big army of Confederates run up on them. So this is like we said, obviously some other dimension, some other time, some other multiverse, a different earth where, you know, they'd handled the Romans and then the Confederates came in with the gats and, you know, Shorty had to hit him with the gift. Like yeah. And even the swords, aren't the swords more like Romanesque? The swords that the that the warrior women are having. 
Well, when they're training, they they were definitely some you know African inspired. They had okay. the swords and the spears, and then when they're slaughtering, I'm, they were probably using whatever was good. You know, they murdered a lot of people <laughs> they at were that point. Rocking them, I mean, and I felt like they rocked them on five minutes, like or less. Oh, less. That <laughs> they, fight they, scene they, was they, a minute. That was they, less than a minute. They put in work. Crush you know? them. Yeah. Yeah. Put but, in work, and then you know work got put in, and you know, Hippolyta was. <laughs> <laughs> And we out. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one who felt that way. Y'all, y'all like, Yo, she that. just peace. Yeah, no. <laughs> Looks like it was getting rough over there. I mean, Homegirl was one of the warriors was crying. Like Hippolyta was. She knew what was coming. And she again, so she's she's staring at Hippolyta, who's also behind her is a horde of Confederates. She's like, I mean, a horde was coming towards her. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's like animate, great speech, but uh, we about to we it. about to die. You know that, right? Like, this is a beautiful speech and all, but uh, I ain't crying because of your speech. <laughs> oh man! Um, going back to womanhood, uh, <laughs> the, that thing we got to we got to talk about the the understanding of motherhood and the sacrifices of it, mm. um, and and also evokes the conversation about that that keeps weaving through this that Hippolyta brings up about shrinking yourself or, or in another terms, dimming your light for others in order to fit in or to be accepted. Um, you know, there, there's the thought that women have to shrink themselves in order to, for, for uh, shrink themselves for men in order to fulfill their dreams and their wishes. Like mm. when, when you get married and if, if you're in a traditional approach and you get married, the man wants to have a baby and you may not be ready for that. You may want to be in Paris with Josephine Baker but when you have that baby, you know, that changes everything in your life like that. And, and not to say that everything else stops, but really your life changes uh, irreversibly. Um, you you are quite literally responsible for another life uh, throughout that person's life. Um, and you do have to sacrifice different things like you can't just be kicking in the streets all the time no more. Maybe you, if you're really rich and you got a lot of help, maybe you can. But <laughs> it, it's it's levels to it. Um, and it's that, like, the yeah. expectation is that it's the woman yeah. is the one who's going to make the sacrifices to not go out as much. The man is not, like, expected yes. societally to have to give up his social life in order to have children as much. No, not at all. Men can, you know, a lot of men, they always say that a woman becomes a mother when she's pregnant and a man becomes a father when he sees the child. Mm. You know, but a lot of men don't become fathers when they see the child. Nope. Let's keep it real. Show sure don't. <laughs> you know? Machos, I'm looking at you. They see it and they keep on moving like shit ain't changed. They're like, oh, I see that there's yeah. a thing out in this nice. world that has my genes. Ooh, I have a legacy now. That's yeah. all I cared about. Deal Boom. with it. Yeah. And don't yeah. care what the legacy is as long as they have one. Like, you know, mm-hmm. kids can do whatever. Fuck them kids. <laughs> <laughs> We, ah, we need that meme. We need Montrose Smith. Oh my God! In the black Please. and white. Um, we see a very interesting uh, view of motherhood when it comes to our girl Letty. Uh, Letty oh. ends up having the same dream as Atticus was with Atticus is running through that Braithwaite mansion while it's on fire, and she's running after the ancestor Hannah. Um. And, and eventually she burns up just like Atticus does. But there's one difference. In the dream, Letty is pregnant. Mm-hmm. And then you're just like, you know, usually when you have dreams, what they say, you have dreams of fish. Or mm-hmm. even just the literal dream of being pregnant, you're probably pregnant. Um, then in the real world, when after they're playing space and, and Ruby goes, excuse me, Letty goes to check in on Ruby and her cooking, she tries to taste or smell Ruby's cooking. And the smell of garlic makes Letty nauseous, which is 
what happens a lot with, with certain smells or food can make pregnant women nauseous. It's, it's a common side effect of being pregnant because your hormones are changing. And, you know, just even, and, and Ruby's like, damn, garlic is your favorite. So, you know, even on a very basic level, just things that you, you enjoy and love, you may have to forego because, mm-hmm. and that's one of the sacrifices you have to make to be a mother. But also for me, it was like, this is like unquestionable that she's pregnant with um, Atticus's child because why else would she be having a dream that only Atticus actually saw happen? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. his ancestor is speaking through her, through the baby. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is the first time Atticus, which is, this is what bothered me, honestly, besides like her being pregnant or whatever, like, okay, this is like a whole new chapter. What's going to happen here? But um, was the fact that it took Letty observing that his ancestor was holding a book because Atticus, after all them times that he's had this vision, never you, realized some girl was holding a book. That? How you ain't see that, my guy? It was a big ass book. It too, has you know what I'm leaves like, holding out of it. It's just like <laughs> Atticus too busy asking dumbass questions in his dream. <laughs> what? What? You know, he ain't got time to see a book. He's still trying to figure out what you're saying. Like, huh? You know, <laughs> nigga, the house is on fire. Get out the house and then ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like, I hope his ancestor passed him down something, some kind of sense, but like, just so common far, sense. I just, yeah, yeah. I may have been um, saved by the black woman in his life, but they've definitely had to make themselves small to save his ass. He was trying to make, like, going back to what Tatiana was talking about earlier, he was trying to make Hippolyta be smaller mm. and give him yeah. the car. Literally, mm. he mm. literally was. Stru- that's literally mm. an example of him trying to make someone who is an older black, older than him, mm-hmm. has a hire because she owns the car. You don't mm. own the car, homeboy. Nope. And he thought he could just roll up, be like, "Sup, I need the car," and yep. she's gonna give it to him. Tell her about her business. Oh, Uncle George did. The- what? Nigga, you just got to town. Yeah. Like, fam. You know, Uncle we... George ain't even a lot. Uncle George ain't here. Yeah. Well, and even if like he was. The memory, the memory of Uncle George is not going to keep me <laughs> in this thing. Like no. The memory. No. Mm-mm. <laughs> Atticus is wild annoying now. Well, I, thank you. See, really y'all was is. distracted by the muscles, <laughs> by the guns. I get it. You know, my man works out, but this man ain't shit. And he ain't been shit since the first episode. And now y'all finally see it. It was like the last he, couple episodes. I'm like, the last yes. couple. I mean, because he looks sheepish as hell holding that one tight ass flower for. Yeah, uh, that's all cute. In the Daegu episode. Like, yeah, that's bro. all cute, but he's trifling. The man Water the worst, is. just like the rest. <laughs> Um, you can argue that motherhood is the reason that why Hippolyta decides to go back home. Um, Mm -hmm. she tells a higher being or or Serafina that she says Diana needs her. Like at the very end, after after she says after she, I don't know, like she she does uh uh, the vision move where she turns into like molecules and flies through space and she's seeing all her infinite possibilities and then she's just like, you know what, Diana needs me, my daughter, Mm -hmm. and and and. People may have different approaches to how they feel about that, but that that's also a very commendable thing. It's just like, do you choose the infinite or do you choose to be there for your, and we're using vampire terms, your progeny, the your your legacy, your and really a, a young black girl who absolutely needs the support of her mother. So, mm-hmm. but also like, 
who wants to have brought a life into this world and then leave them to fend for themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, Some people before do. Before their time. <laughs> Negroes. Matros. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but we all know Matros is a little different, but you know. But is Matros really his daddy? Because that's where I am That's today. what I'm saying. That's this what I'm getting to. I, I keep getting to the point where I'm just like, I just need y'all to go on and get that one extra, just go on mm. the next just step of conversation and say... Your mama let me claim you because I needed that validation to get through mm-hmm. life that I had something, but I'm pretty sure you're not my kid. I'm, I'm going to keep it real. You're George's. Yeah. Like, What's I just it? need them to get there because I'm tired. Look, I understand it's a TV show and you got to build the drama, but once again, there are so many things that could have been solved by a simple conversation yes. on this show. Because, <laughs> goddammit, if Ruby and um, Letty had just had a bit more words right then in that kitchen... <laughs> There would be no problem for Christina, but now we still got a problem for Christina because she don't want to reveal who she's sleeping with. She over here, what house you sleeping at? Oh, I don't want to tell you that because, you know, I hate your fucking guts, you know? (laughs) But also, how much has Christina told Ruby for Ruby to be already to listen and ear hustle whenever she knows that uh, Letty is back there doing a phone call? Because there's, I mean, I don't feel like Ruby generally is like that, like into Letty's business. So I feel like Christina told her to be listening, like, She's because mm-hmm. she, that's what we left them at was yeah. Christina saying, this has much more to do with your family than you think. Mm-hmm. And then break to now she's over here. Suddenly she wants to go um, be in the house where George used to live. And mm-hmm. I'm feeling like homegirls is, is real sus right now. And we don't have enough time to go, know what's going on behind the scenes. But I guess we're going to get there sooner or later. Oh, we will. Oh, we will. Um, and we're definitely going to get back to, to Ruby and the whole Christina situation. Um, rounding out this this uh, theme of motherhood, um, something I noticed, the cowrie shells. Cowrie mm-hmm. shells appeared a lot in this episode. Um, Hippolyta was wearing cowrie shells earrings when she left for the observatory. And then in that kind of African Amazonian village, I noticed that all of the women were wearing these cowrie shells absolutely everywhere mm-hmm. in all varying sizes. Huge, tiny ones in their hair and their clothing and their jewelry and their weaponry, just everything. Um, Cowrie shell significance uh, is uh, particularly in Mende culture in Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. Cowrie shells are viewed as symbols of womanhood, fertility, birth, and wealth. Um, and certain like authors have rep- said that the cowrie shell also represents a vulva, uh, you know, part of a, a woman um, body part, uh, or an eye. Um, and also throughout Africa, in South and in North America, the cowrie shell represents power of destiny and prosperity. And okay. women hold the, are, are prosperous. Women can, you know, can be fruitful and multiply, so. Yeah, women, women are the ones who are fruitful and multiply. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, like I said, we was gonna bring up Ruby and Christina again because Ben's favorite theme of vampirism Vampire. reared itself <laughs> just just a little bit this episode. Um, first, definitely want to give a shout out to at M Del Gabrielle on Twitter, M D L L E Gabrielle on Twitter, who correctly guessed that in order for Christina to perform that metamorphosis into William, she needed the blood of the dead. So as we see, it's revealed that Del, uh, that woman that was in that. Laid it down. That <laughs> that woman who who got who got the laid fade, down. Yeah, the fade. <laughs> laid down in that silo. Um, who uh, she used her blood for Ruby to become Hillary, and then William um, was actually interesting enough. She he was a, was he a member of her father's lodge? Um, 
William taught Christina magic and mm -hmm. and really trained her in, in damn near everything she knows. And he taught her a few other things too. Okay. Well, I mean, they probably taught each other a few other things, you know what I mean? <laughs> Equal opportunity. Dude. Not my business. Hey. So, <laughs> not my business. Um, it was just so weird because then now she's using his body to, um, or performing his body. Okay. Hey. Um, but that was, I just want to, <laughs> did he donate his body for science or magic sidebar? But any side off of that. I, I just thought she took it. I didn't even yeah, think it was took a donation. It, no, she took donation. She took the body. My man but got I shot know. and died in a river, like she said. Like, that's what yeah. she said. He no, just, I'm just saying no. it would have been funny if he was like, if I ever die, just use me for this spell mm. that's a theory. Just work mm -hmm. it out. Just take my, it's fine, right? <laughs> just work it out. Uh, you have my consent. But, um. <laughs> use me as a blood bag. Right? And, use me to, and use me as a dildo. I don't know. I'm sure that wasn't in the consent form. Like, you know. <laughs> you know no. do what you want to do as a man. <laughs> you know, who am I? So yeah, you to not I'm enjoy dead. being, the, to the, full, the totality of being a white man in America. Like, yeah. do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, down. Right. <laughs> what was I gonna say? Oh yeah, but I did like so the observations Childish. of like where the book, the book Lovecraft Country, um, comes in with the show. Mm -hmm. Um, the blood bag thing is very much like true. Like in the in the book, they don't have William, mm -hmm. but they do have Dell, and she is the blood bag or whatever. So there is while the show has been diverging a lot from the book, there's still some things where you're just like, okay, at least they kept this part. Mm -hmm. They kept mm -hmm. this part. All right. Um, like um. Hippolyta's journey to the observatory, like she did this kind of similar in that like she found the um, the calculations, she followed them out, figured out how to get there, um, and then figured out whatever the puzzle was and she was the first one to kind of get the machine working within the observatory in a long time, which is why the policemen came in there and were like, you have to figure this out because no one's been able to figure that thing out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I like that they had those carryovers from the books because we don't get a lot of those. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And our favorite resident vampire, Christina, was covered in blood once again. It's just like, for them to just be walking around covered covered in blood, like, I understand she might have just transformed, but can y'all please wipe that off? Like I know, I know that actress is wild tired of it, too. <laughs> like, wild tired of having to be dipped in blood damn near every episode she shows up to set. Like the marination, like this is not a barbecue, but whatever. Also, um, um, you know, you spoke about pregnancy, but Letty just might be a vampire because she's scared of the garlic now. Oh, oh I didn't even put that together. Oh no! Don't. But when did she then. come in contact with vampire blood, though? <laughs> Who knows? You don't know, say just, that, Ben. Don't say it, that. You know, vampire. vampire. <laughs> <laughs> now you're gonna be over here saying the word "sucky" with the sucky. <laughs> Um, uh, th <laughs> those are that kind of rounds out are the major themes of this episode um, of course we have to get into more of the Easter eggs inspirations a lot of we have already mentioned um, like we mentioned about the, the, the Dahomey Amazons or Dahomey Amazons um, Portia had a very good point particularly about a certain Afrofuturistic author well, excuse me, because she I don't think she likes to be called Afrofuturistic author. She actually doesn't. Let me back that one up. Apologies. But the author is N.K. Jemison. What is your note about N.K.? So N.K. wrote this really cool trilogy that I keep forgetting that I read, but that I always also know that I read. It's <laughs> weird. Um, called um, The Inheritance Trilogy. And then the first book is called The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. Um, and it's basically like a West African-esque um, dynasty of people like the whole 
series goes through these different peoples. Um, but the main character, her name is Yain, and she claims her spot as the leader of the Dar, um, which is a matriarchal society of warriors, which is very mm-hmm. similar to Amazon's. Um, and the ceremony for her to become the leader is very much like what we see with what Hippolyta goes through with the warrior women that she um, becomes charge of when she has, like, when she gets that chief um, helmet, like, that whole journey that she did to get there, that's very yeah. similar to what Yain went through as well. Mm. Mm, very that's nice. Um, what I, you know, just mentioning the the diaspora connection, um, when I talked about cowrie shells, you know, very prominent in Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa, the this the all-female military army in the Republic of Benin, another West African nation um, that was involved in the transatlantic slavery tra- uh, trade. And to have that connection between these these West African countries and then America and all these different locations in America that, you know, kind of just obvious connection to black history. Um, I One I really loved, another, another reason why I was absolutely obsessed with this episode, uh, when Hippolyta was calculating the... Uh, the trajectories or whatever the hell she was <laughs> calculating the, the geometry bodies, and the trigonometry the geometry. when she was doing all the all the calculus uh and then you saw at one point the <laughs> the calculations appeared above her like oh you know x plus y is z and shit like that um it reminded me of hidden figures mm-hmm. and for those who haven't seen that film hidden figures is is features the story of many different black women but particularly of katherine johnson um, who was whose her calculations, her trajectory calculations actually were critical to the success of the first U.S. crewed space flights. Um, she was one of the first African American women to work at NASA as a scientist, and her work was pivotal for the Mercury program, Apollo program, and she even worked on plans for a mission to Mars. Um, I didn't even realize that she actually passed in February of this year. I thought it was last year, but that's how effed up 2020 is. Mm. She passed in February 24th of this year. Um, and I mentioned about her plans on Mission to Mars because there's also connections right back to Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about Mars, the Prince of Mars, Arithia Blue Adventures. I know she goes to Mars at one point, but to, at least in the book. Um, it's, it's all connected, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, also, uh, Hippolyta was Arithia Blue in this episode, as you see with her little Kim Brett. blue blue wig hair, you know, when she's traveling around the universe with George. Yeah. And I believe Hippolyta is calculating angular momentum, which is trying to understand the time it takes for a planet to orbit around a sun. In this case, two suns. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'm not going to go into that because that's lots of math and lots of astronomy that, that I, I refuse. All the numbers. <laughs> 318. <laughs> 212. <laughs> 710. <laughs> like all the calculations and the coordinates. And it's just, it was, it was a lot. Ludicrous. Uh, yo um again speaking on black culture letty and the kids were playing spades Mm. now i i admit i'm one of the 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 poor poor black people who have not been taught the proper way to play spades wow so y'all could take away my card i don't care it is what it is I know. Now, let me be clear. I know the way the game works, but I'm like, when you, it's different when you aren't exactly taught because people like, do you know, or do Mm -hmm. you know how to play? And then if you give even a sideways answer, they're like, fuck it. You're not on the team. Yeah. I wouldn't be on the team. How am I supposed to learn if you won't teach me? Because I haven't played in so many years that I'd have to be reminded. So I would not choose me. But in high school, I used to be a monster, but that was so long ago. We used to play that shit a hard body every lunch period. I, I turned into a domino. Can you play dominoes? Can you at least play bones? 
Yeah, no. Dominoes. Okay, well then. No, we'll Portia. No. You gotta have at least one of the. Two. I know how to play dominoes. Spades, yeah, you gotta, I got. Yeah, so you gotta Spades have one got. of the two. Otherwise, we gotta take your card away. I blame people who don't teach. I teach. do too. Yeah, teach. Don't 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 clown. Teach. Thank but you, you got to play at least bones or spades, one of the two, or shoot some dice. That should be our rainbow of the day. Like, don't don't hate. Teach black people teach. to play spades. <laughs> sure, no, this no, is the no. marrow rainbow of the day. No, teach uh, black people. Yeah, yeah, teach black. Yeah, people. yeah, yeah teach. teach. Yeah, that's our rainbow. Don't clown your black family members at the <laughs> gathering. Teach yeah. them. Yeah, teach black people to play spades. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it has come up before, but it's mentioned again by Birdie, which is a friend of Atticus's cousin on his mom's side. Um, there's a mention of the Tulsa Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, we, we talked about how this appeared in Watchmen, another HBO series. And also just the fact that even Lovecraft Country is, is teaching a lot of black history that may not necessarily have been taught in your primary schools and other, and other levels in America um, that came up. Um, and, and I thought it was also interesting, speaking of Birdie, in her house, I saw a painting of the Black Madonna and Child. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Madonna or the Black Virgin just refers to statues or paintings of the Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus. But both figures are depicted as depicted as black. Um, reminds me of having the Black Jesus pictures. And, you know, if you go to your uncle and aunt's houses, you see that, um, you know, how how it just manifests in that way. Um one of the greatest and worst yeah. moments of my life was when I was living in Maryland, and what's the name? Uh, Robert Griffin III, the Washington football team's quarterback. Oh, I was in a Walmart, and they had a photo or a painting of him as like in the Black Jesus style. I mean, we were right down the street from FedEx Stadium, but you know, it, it was it was another level. Like that was you know one of the greatest and worst moments of my life. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's see. Oh, this is a huge one. Um, yes. Atticus, when he pops out the portal, he has a very specific book in his hand. What is that book, Ben? Well, like we said, you know, because uh, Hippolyta goes into the portal and then Atticus gets sucked in to the portal as well. And we don't, we see Hippolyta's adventures. We see her dealing with the numbers, all this, all shit. But we don't see shit from Atticus until he pops up out of the portal at the end, holding a Lovecraft Country novel. <laughs> Ri- and instead of being written by our friend Matt Ruff, you know, as we know in this universe, the Lovecraft White Man. No- yeah, White Man. You know, the Bobby Caldwell of <laughs> novelist. Um, <laughs> instead of being written by our boy Matt Ruff, it is written by George Freeman himself. You don't say. You Honestly, don't say. When I saw that, I literally yelled out loud, George fucking Freeman? I screamed to the heavens. Before I even saw George, I saw Lovecraft Country, and I just started screaming like, what does it all mean? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so um, my theory right now, my working in progress theory, is that Atticus visited the same realm that we saw um, Hippolyta visited where she got to speak with George and explain to him the world within worlds and all this different and probably all the adventures, everything she knows about. And that's another thing. I don't even think we saw all of Hippolyta's adventures. I think we just see a no. portion of them. Agreed. Yeah. So who knows what other worlds she visited, all this other stuff. So she explains with him, then takes him on adventures as well. So then she bounces and he writes this book. 
because you know just once again he's a negro and steals all her great ideas and oh. you know yeah puts the book for himself makes her smaller yet again does not learn his lesson ben if you're right because they had a whole fucking conversation about Everything. her being made to feel small mm-hmm. and he was like oh my bad I mean, what's he going to <laughs> do? He really like, le- generally didn't say much except for my bad. So <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing, though. Is he going to, like... Yeah, I mean, all right, that's the other thing. Is his wife still there? You know, did, you know is this like a um, Kuhimo situation? Like, did uh, Hippolyta pop into the body of the Hippolyta that was in that universe? That's what I was wondering. Let me, let me take this back. Wait. I was wondering throughout this whole episode... If Hippolyta had jumped into the bodies of different people mm-hmm. who she quantum so, leap in it, yeah. So she did. So Josephine Baker is actually a dancer that was there. Josephine Baker it just wasn't Hippolyta. So mm-hmm. is this interdimensional intertime, whereas none of this is connected at all to the Earth that she's related to? It's just its own thing. Or will she return back to her Earth? look at the newspapers from Josephine Baker's time and recognize herself within the dancer mm-hmm. that was actually there. Like, how how does this actually work? Because mm-hmm. that's where I was. I was like, is in this dimension, is she actually her, is she George's wife? Or is that actually Atticus's mother, who is his wife? And she's jumped into the body of Atticus's mother in the dimension where George ends up with Atticus's mother. Mm. It could be all kind of things. And then the other one about that is, does she return to the world with D and the world that we know with all of the memories? Like, does she know, still have to know how to whoop ass like that? You know what I mean? Because she's a warrior now. She's been through all these different things. So does she remember all that? But we'll have to see. But the tagline on the cover of the Lovecraft Country book Lens I'm just kind of just having like the calculations because face it's right just <laughs> right yeah, now. Like the fuck, you, you know, you got to think of these things when you start time traveling, mind yeah. traveling. Wow. Okay. And dimensions, yeah, but, like there's multiple dimensions within our own perception of dimension. Mm-hmm. So, and like I said, the tagline on the cover of the book is "Journey into Worlds Within Worlds Within Worlds." So it seems like whatever George Freeman wrote this book, whichever one it is, has some knowledge of something else that's going on. Also, is like that's the other question: Is the book that Atticus is holding in his hands is it the same one that Matt Ruff is? So it's Attic. I mean, Matt Ruff wrote. So is Atticus trying to open it and then be like, "Yo, this ain't this ain't what happened. This is yeah, different," you know? Or, or is it the book of the TV show and he's going to be able to know the future by reading the book? Or, or is, is it, it actually- like? Back to the Future, where it keeps changing as he's reading it and doing shit. I hate y'all or, so much. Or what's the last one? Oh, we got more. Okay. Yes. Or, or is it a choose your own adventure book? So it's like an like there we go on parallel timelines, whatever world within worlds. Or is it actually the book of Adam language or whatever? Kind of like, but it's like covered up with the facade of love. Yeah. Mm. Find out next time, folks. <laughs> No. Um, we are almost done with our analysis here. Um, <laughs> just a few other points to bring up, particularly in the orrery. Remember at the top of this episode, we talked about that line or that inscription that says every beginning is in time and every limit of extension in space. When I read that, I just kept saying to myself, I've heard this somewhere before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually, it's, I don't know if it's a remix thereof or what, but it's yeah. similar to this thesis from a German philosopher called Immanuel Kant. And the first part of the thesis is 
the world has a beginning in time and with regard to space is also limited. So it sounds similar. Um, mm-hmm. the, the excerpt is from the book, The Critique of Pure Reason. And the reason why this is important is because Immanuel Kant was one of the most notable Enlightenment thinkers to promote racism and <laughs> was one of the central figures in the birth of modern scientific racism. As we know about the, the, the Brotherhood of the Dawn, whatever the fuck they're called, uh, the Hiram, the Racist Lodge members, all of them, they subscribe to scientific racism heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for them to, and again, we see that they, they warp and misconstru- in their head, misconstrue different histories of the world and, and other things for their own nefarious purposes, even down to the Bible. So I just thought that was like a holy shit moment. Um, and, you know, we just when we talked before, we joked about it. When we talked about um, Hippolyta doing all her calculations <laughs> and all the different area codes she was coming up with. 2A1. Yeah. 202. So <laughs> you do see two sets of, initially with the orary, you see two sets of coordinates, right? Typically mm-hmm. longitude and latitude. That shows, that can tell you a, a specific area on a map. You could Google it. It'll, it'll show you a place. Specifically, if you Google those two coordinates for the on the orrery, you actually end up in Kansas. So it mm-hmm. all checks out. The other places, not so much. Um, it's because you have to also understand that there's a third number there that may represent time, a moment in time. And if you think about, Ben, ben explained it to me, if you think about it, when as the Earth or any planet rotates, that same location may be different depending on what time it is. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if it's later in the day, or early in the morning, whatever, it, you may be slightly somewhere different. Or um, you could be in space if the planet has moved because the planet is not just rotating, it's also uh, circling around our sun. Right. Um, those, those three Orbit. sets of Thank numbers, you. like when you're talking about longitude, latitude, time, all that other stuff, it also is... is referencing Cartesian coordinates. Mm-hmm. Cartesian coordinates are used to define positions in space, particularly 3D dimensional space. It's also used to help computers, you know, render surrounding, render a person in virtual reality, which is very scary too, because it's like, damn, these Lovecraft country people have really did their homework because for those who don't know, there has been a series of hashtag Lovecraft Sanctum VR events that have been happening. One has happened in September. One has happened last week. And there's a few more coming. But uh, a few influencers and random other people, including myself, we were actually given Oculus Rift units, which are VR units. And to have that connection with the VR, and now you're talking about maybe Hippolyta is in a VR. Well, for all the fuck we know, that, that observatory is a form of virtual reality. It's pretty fucking wild. There's also the idea that our whole universe is nothing but a virtual reality uh, simulation created by a larger being like God or an alien. And that's a theory that scientists are still debating to this day. Yeah. Um, I did record. It gets weird. It gets very weird. Um, and it, and it, gets, it gets scary depending on who you are. <laughs> but I did record all of the coordinates and, the, and that time date. I did not look at them up. If y'all want them, we will give them to you. We will post them on our socials and on the timeline and all that stuff. And y'all can have a blast trying to figure out what it all means. I just love that theory that we could all be living in a virtuality and you're still trying to test that out. Because, like, it goes back to, like, Rene Descartes, who was kind of Mm -hmm. like, um, I think, therefore I am. Because he literally was, like, in his mind, like, is any of this real? And then Mm -hmm. he was like, 
how do I figure out if, I, if things are real or not? It's basically like the premise of Inception. Like, how do we figure out this is reality or not? Um, and it's like the way, the, my ability to think precedes yeah. my ability to live. Therefore, I am um, alive. And this is the real reality because I would not be yeah. able to think the way that I'm currently able to think if this were a fake reality. And, and you know, and Hippolyta talks about talked about that as she was jumping through the different realities she said it might feel like like particularly with george she said it may it may be a dream but it feels real mm-hmm. um it's, it's actually a tie-in to the meet me in daegu episode um that episode dealt a lot with judy garland who is dorothy in wizard of oz she's from kansas that whole situation happens in kansas the orrery is in mayfield kansas uh when you think about that story of the wizard of oz how that, that refrain that always keeps happening, we're not in Kansas anymore. And, and the idea of traveling to different worlds and even Dorothy feeling like everything felt so real, but it was just a dream. So mm-hmm. that, that interrogation of what's real, what's a dream, you see that a lot in many different movies. Um, Inception is a great one of that. Um, the Matrix. I mean, all of this stuff is all connected, y'all. Um, but while uh, we're on Judy Garland, we would yeah. be remiss not to miss that um, they actually go to St. Louis in this episode after just having an episode Meet Me in Daegu that was mm-hmm. Meet Me mm-hmm. in uh, St. Louis Reverse, like a remix. Yep. So that was cool that they actually went there. And also that what um, Josephine was born in St. Louis. Yeah. Yep. So there's so a lot of connections all... there. Yep. Yeah. I mean, tons of connections, tons of, of different Easter eggs. Um, um, we, we mentioned a bit before, but this vast departures from the book. Um, it, it, damn near the entire episode is, is a huge departure from the book, but it's still amazing how it was done. So well done in terms of writing. Um, and, um, you know, again, we just mentioning the music again, outstanding. Uh, we saw... What's a couple of these songs? Uh, Baby, Let's Make Love by the Penguins. Um, there was an opera that was playing between Sammy and Montrose when they're arguing. Um, I mentioned P.L. Canella. That's sung by Josephine Baker. But it was originally from a Puerto Rican singer that went under the stage name Bobby Capo. Mm. Uh, Lady Marmalade as sung by LaBelle. Um, and a brief anecdote about it, I thought it was funny. Patty LaBelle had no idea what the song was about. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, when you read the lyrics, it's kind of like, Come on, Auntie Patty, but I get you. <laughs> She's like, I don't know, nobody's French, okay? I would just well, yeah. it was a French, right? But I'm like, no one, no there wasn't one no Google translated. Back then. No, you know who translated? The person who wrote, wrote it in French, they didn't write it in English too. No, but I love that whoever somebody had to tell them how to pronounce the French words correctly, just think, mm. like or whatever, or maybe they just kept listening to the recording and they just. Yeah. But nobody said out. anything, and if they Probably didn't, that's fucked up. <laughs> nobody said funky. Yeah. Um. Uh, and also Fire by Mother's Finest. I'm really happy that this show put me on to this this 70s band because they, I mean, for those who play like Guitar Hero and shit like that, this shit goes. It does. Laps. It does. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and funny enough, the that Serafina woman kind of, at least in the show, resembles the lead singer in, in Mother's Finest. Nice. Yeah. For me, I was like, why are they playing rock music? When initially, I was kind of jarred by the fact they were playing like hard rock music right whenever um, like it's a battle scene of like African warrior women. I'm like, why isn't there some like African like warrior music? Like get them ready, get them amped or whatever. And then I was like, wait, rock music is ours. They took it from us. We got mm-hmm. this. This is ours too. And then I, ca- yep. I as the music Remember, kept going, I was like, oh, this is us. Remember Ruby right? playing the guitar, Sister Rosetta Tharp, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. From the so. Jake. Yeah. All right, so that is generally the end of our huge analysis of this episode. Are there any just last comments or points any of you all want to make? 
um, make sure you head over to tpublic.com slash for all nerds and you can get some of this beautiful merch. I'm not sure if you can right there we go. See the cup. There yes. we go. See the cup that matches the shirt. And you know, we got the shirts, we got the cups, you can get that. As Tatiana and Portia are both wearing the logo shirt, you know, the mm-hmm. sun is so bright right now. Time I don't know why it's so bright, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but the cup is fire. I love the mug. Um, you gotta do like a makeup artist, you gotta hold it like the palm. <laughs> you gotta do it on YouTuber. Yeah, you gotta um, do it the other side, the other side. Like Ben Ami said, get your Safe Negro podcast merch. That is what helps us keep the wheels moving on this. Also, if you're uh, familiar with the rest of what we do, we're, we are also for all nerds. We do geek and pop culture from the perspective of people of color. You can also support us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash for all nerds, where we also employ a bunch of creatives of color to help keep this machine going. Um, make sure you get out and vote, as Ben Ami mentioned last Word week. Word is voter registration week right now. You can still Yo. register to vote right now. If you're listening to the show, right it takes now. you two minutes. Vote or literally become a vote volunteer, become a poll worker. Mm-hmm. Find out which of your relatives that are over eighteen are not registered. Help take them to register. Help them re- figure it out. You can go yep. find a website. There's really easy ways to uh, register vote. online Gov. if you can. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And as always, follow us at Safe Negro Pod. Also at For All Nerds, and make sure you subscribe to For All Nerds on your favorite podcast platform. That is the only way you get to listen to this amazing podcast. And also follow us. I'm at Tatiana King. I am at DJ Ben Amin. And I changed it just for y'all. It is now at Porsche, uh, no underscores. Hey. Hey.